0: As we begin, I'd like to pray with you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we begin our time together tonight, we're gonna talk about a very sensitive and important conversation. We are gonna talk about doubt. More particularly, we're gonna talk about this idea called deconstruction. And as we begin our time together tonight, we submit Holy Spirit to you. We submit Jesus to you, and we submit to you, Father. And we even wanna say... In the name of Jesus, we cast out any demonic spirits, any forces of evil that seek to rob us of our identity in Christ. And so together, we just do a little spiritual warfare. Spirits of evil be gone. Jesus is Lord here. Jesus is Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, If you have a copy of the Bible, I'd like for you to open it. Um, We're going to get to uh, this passage in John chapter 20. We're going to actually just spend some time reading a few uh, verses. Uh, We're going to read about this guy named Thomas, and uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of these disciples who we uh, have uh, in our New Testament narrative, the story of Jesus. We want to read about this guy named Thomas. And what we're going to eventually get to uh, is we're going to talk about uh, this deconstruction journey, uh, doubt, and Unfortunately, I have learned the hard way, as maybe you have, that for a lot of us and a lot of the people that we lead, we were never taught that doubt can be a legitimate space to encounter the living God. And so what often happens is we encounter doubt or we encounter these moments where we question what we think about God, and all of a sudden we start wondering, maybe if I'm, do I really love Jesus? I remember a young man by the name of Phil, uh, when I lived uh, in southeast Portland for the better part of 10 years and pastored a, a beautiful church called Theophilus that, that is continuing in the southeast uh, Southeast region. There was a young man by the name of Phil who had just moved from middle America, raised, raised in this beautiful, con- sort of Jesus-loving, conservative middle American town and moved to Portland. He got a tech job at one of the big tech firms in Portland. <clears throat> he had typed into his uh, uh, sort of Google uh, his Google search engine, uh, Missional Church in Southeast Portland. I don't know how it found us, but it did. And he emailed, and, and the tagline simply said, Love to meet for coffee. I'm sitting with my new friend, Phil, in my office, and he's telling me his story. Loves Jesus. So excited to be in Portland, uh, to be serving the Lord, to be uh, on mission. You know, he's, he sort of brings a sort of middle American vitality, right? He's going to come and conquer Portland. So excited. And he wants to be a part of the church, he wants to serve, he wants to be on the sound team. And we I'm just so excited. I mean, here I am, a pastor, a new volunteer. So excited, and a young man who loves Jesus. And the conversation goes, we have a wonderful conversation. And I remember Phil leaving my office, and I said goodbye. And For a few weeks I saw Phil come to church. And I began to notice that Phil's attendance started to sort of dwindle a bit. And about a year later, Um, I get a a second email from Phil and Phil comes back into my office. He's sitting in the exact same spot he had been sitting in before. And he looks at me and he says, it's been a wild year. And he says, you know, this year I I moved in with my roommate, Charles, uh, who's an atheist and man, he has some really incredible questions about the Bible. Um, and I have these coworkers that, that really had some interesting things to say about politics, and I think I've been wrong about that. And he utters the word and he says, I've evolved, and I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And at this point, I, you know, as a good pastor, I, I wanted to sort of prod in, and I began to tell that there was actually some searing anger that was coming to the surface. Some resentment, some anger towards his hometown. He was mad at his parents for voting a certain way and of course he was far from them so he couldn't talk to them. He only saw stuff over Facebook. Um, he started meeting people that thought very different things than he did. He'd never encountered people like this and he even says his roommate who's an atheist is the smartest guy he's ever met. What do I do with that? And then he says all of my non-Christian friends are like way nicer than my Christian friends and before we know it, he has tears cascading down his face and he says I have all these questions. And all I have to talk to is podcasts. And he says to me, I don't know if I'm still a Christian. I don't know if I'm allowed to be. And he goes, I want to be. But I'm really, really having a hard time believing this. Does this sound familiar? Are these individuals that you care about? Is this some of us? And what happened in this one year period for my friend Phil, was what we have come to call the deconstruction process. Over the course of one year, Phil began to face some questions that he had never faced in his childhood. He had never had to face them. He lived in this awesome, perfect, idyllic Eden-esque little town in middle America. He would never had to face these questions. But all of a sudden, coming to Portland, he had to face a whole new array of things he'd never thought about. You know, they say, that during the Oregon Trail people came and what did they all die of? They all died of dysentery. But there's a new kind of Oregon Trail now. And the death is not dysentery, it's deconstruction. It is a new trail. It's very painful, it's very hard. And for a lot of us, we're gonna go like, okay, well, let's just, it's all wrong, right? Doubt, deconstruction, it's all wrong. But I wanna invite you tonight There's these two worlds. One that would say doubt is is really bad, kind of the conservative view that says doubt is bad, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And this other side that would say doubt is good, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. But tonight, I want to invite you to a third way. And the third way absolutely rejects and crucifies this ideological zealotry that is ripping us apart. And actually says in the middle of these two insane options, There's the way of Jesus. And that the way of Jesus is the most liberating, life-giving, true, authentic thing you could ever imagine. But it's hard. So Jesus has resurrected. Uh, He has come out of the tomb. Uh, Even to some of the disciples, he has uh, walked around and eaten a bunch of food. In fact, the number one activity Jesus does after the resurrection, the number one reported activity Jesus does after his resurrection is eat. He's always eating. I love this. The resurrection state is not the end of hunger. Sometimes it makes you hungry. Okay. But he walks around for 40 days and he just eats. He's always eating with these disciples. One of the first occasions in which he appears to the disciples, he's with all the disciples except for, of course, Judas, who was not there. But Thomas wasn't there either. And so the disciples have seen Jesus, but Thomas hasn't. And Thomas hears that Jesus has resurrected, and this is what happens uh, in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace, be with you, which is something, by the way, he always says when he shows off his resurrected body. I think they were terrified. They didn't know what to do. So he has to say, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And incidentally, Orthodox Christians have actually believed for thousands of years that the scars in Jesus, which he had after his resurrection, are the sign that we will know him in his glory. The Orthodox believe no other God would be willing to bear scars. I mean, that moment in in John's Apocalypse where he says that Jesus, that he will wipe the tears from his eyes, you will see that scar very closely. the Orthodox believe actually the sign of Jesus' authenticity is he is the only God who would be willing to bear the marks of death. And Thomas sees them. And look what Thomas does. He says, my Lord and my God. This act of worship, this profound act of worship for Bible scholars, for New Testament scholars, this is a very interesting thing that, that, that Thomas does. He bows down and he worships Jesus. To which Jesus does not say, you've taken it a little too far. He receives worship. He receives worship. Because this is not a good teacher. This is the Son of God. This is the divine king, the ruler and reigner of the universe. And then Jesus tells him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I want to identify three things that happened to Thomas. I think by identifying these sort of three stages for Thomas, we're going to actually have some some blueprint, some help to understand how we walk through doubt and deconstruction, but all the more how we serve others who are walking through the same thing. The first thing is this, I I wanna identify that when you look at Thomas's journey, he walks through what I call the theological journey. In my book, After Doubt, I outline these sort of three stages uh, of what we call the theological journey. Now did you notice, Thomas believed in Jesus before. He had spent three years following Jesus, right? He had seen the miracles. He had seen the multiplication of fish. He had been at all these incredible events. He had believed, he had seen and believed because of all these things he'd seen. I mean, can you imagine seeing Jesus feed 5,000 people in the middle of the desert? It's not hard to believe when you've seen the dead raised. He believed, he believed. But we find Thomas in a very different position here because here, his belief has been uh, shaken, impacted. Something has happened. He's having a hard time making it from belief to whatever is next. He is, we have a word for this, he is doubting. And of course, the story after this is Thomas believes again. He returns to his belief. But he comes to his new faith with a new set of eyes. Actually, to be technical, he didn't come to a new faith. He came to his old faith in a new way. And so he goes from belief to doubt to re-belief. Now I wanna show you a a little diagram that I've managed to come up with in my own uh, spare time. This is sort of a way to think about this. Um, This is pretty crafty for someone like by myself. And by the way, I didn't even do this. The people took it and made it way better. So I'm just gonna steal yours and use it from here on out. (laughs) But there's three stages in what I call this theological journey. The first stage is is this, this construction stage. And and we all know this stage. This is the stage where we uh, came to believe in Jesus. This is the stage where we uh, began to construct our beliefs about God. This is kind of our faith family of origin. I met Jesus, for example, at 16 years old in my math class in high school. And when I first started going to church, I went to this very conservative evangelical church in my hometown, a church I'm deeply grateful to to this day. They taught me how to read the Bible. They taught me how to repent. They taught me I needed to get out of my relationship. They taught me all sorts of really important things about my early Christian life. I'm very grateful for that church. In those early years, I was handed a vision of the Trinity. I was handed an understanding of resurrection. I was handed these deep core beliefs, and I received them. I didn't question them. I just received them. They were as if, they were as is beliefs. I just, beliefs, I just received them as they were. And then I went to college. And it actually for me was uh, uh, in seminary. I remember distinctly one of the events that happened when I was in seminary. When I went to seminary, it's it's a very odd experience when you go to seminary because you start realizing that the kingdom of God has a lot of very exotic people in it. (laughs) A lot of people that you would never think could follow Jesus. You're like, oh my goodness gracious, how did you get in here? (laughs) You know, how is this possible? And I remember this one moment, I was in a class on the Old Testament and I'm sitting next to a Catholic, uh, a, a Catholic layperson, an Episcopal priest, an Acts 29 pastor, and a Southern Baptist pastor. And this is my small group. And I remember having this epiphany that the kingdom of God is way bigger than I ever thought it was. <laughs> Disturbingly bigger. And there was this experience of seeing the world realizing that God was so much bigger than I could have ever imagined. There's a line in an old Puritan thinker, uh, uh, an old Puritan said once, uh, he said, you know, if it fits in a spoon, it can't be the ocean. And he's talking about what we think about God. He's saying, if it fits in your mind, it's probably not God. And this eye-opening experience that the kingdom of God was way bigger than I could imagine and probably wanted it to be. And I began to have some pretty big questions. And for the better part of two or three years, I walked through this deconstruction stage. So from construction, those, those early years when we believe, all of a sudden, I'm beginning to question some of these things I'd been handed I remember in deconstruction, I remember one of these events too. That I, while I looked back on this conservative evangelical home I had been, this conservative evangelical church where I believed in Jesus, I was so grateful for the passion and the heart and the love for the Bible I'd been given. But when I went to seminary and started reading the Bible, I started realizing that not only had they taught me the basics of Christian faith, they had also taught me a very low and I would say non biblical vision of women that women were footnotes in the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, I'm beginning to realize the same family that gave me the good news gave me some stuff that probably wasn't good. Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, says, you know, there's all kinds of diseases that you can get. He says, one of the problems, if you go to the hospital to get sick, is that when you go to the hospital, there's sick people at the hospital. (laughs) So guess what happens when you go to get healthy? You get sick. And Eugene Peterson says there's a unique kind of medical illness they call iatrogenic diseases, which are diseases you pick up at the hospital. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is every single person in this room was handed the gospel, was handed a faith in Jesus by an imperfect community. And at some point in our journey we begin to wake up that some of the things that we were handed weren't good And the key is doing what my grandma said. Eat the meat and spit out the bones. (laughs) That you receive the good and let go of the bad. And friends, this stage, here's what happens. When most Christians walk through this stage, it is happening right now on a political level for us. Because if you've been part of an environment of Christians that have supported or backed up something that you believe to be politically detrimental or harmful, all of a sudden, you realize you're part of it. You're complicit in your mind. And now all of a sudden, you're facing this question, like what, do I reject this community? What do I do? And at this stage, what often happens, is rather than walking through it with the presence of Jesus, it becomes faith destruction. And we walk away. And you and I both know exactly what it's like to read the Facebook and Instagram litany. I'm done, I'm sorry to everybody, you know, I'm over. And friends, when you watch deconstruction stories, they have some of the, the exact same things. In all. There's like, there, it's almost like there's a Google Doc out there that they're all copying and pasting from because they have the same kind of things. And and, and a lot of the things that somebody goes through in deconstruction, we assume it's all bad, but I actually wanna suggest to you that when you go to a counselor's office, the first thing you do is they often sit you down and go back to your family of origin. And they start having you ask questions about your childhood. And that one of the most important things we do to grow up in Jesus is to begin to be honest about our faith family of origin. And deal with it. But here's the good news. That when you stay with Jesus long enough through this stage, see, deconstruction, that is the myth. When Phil is sitting in my office, he thinks the fact that he's having doubts means he doesn't believe anymore. And I want to shake the guy. I didn't but I wanna shake him and say, Phil, the fact that you doubt is actually the sign you have faith. I have a friend who's an atheist. Whenever I get together with him, he always gets mad about God, angry about God. And I say to him, friend, you can't be angry at somebody that doesn't exist. You don't, it's not that you don't believe in God, you're mad at God. When you doubt and you struggle and you're trying to find out what you believe, that is actually the sign that there's something deep in you that wants truth. That's beautiful, that's not bad. When I'm a pastor and I hear somebody in my church or in my community or now in my office hours going through a faith struggle, my first thing is to wanna say like, well, let's fix it and get you a YouTube video. Just read this apologist. Listen to this John Mark sermon. Everything will be fine. (laughs) But I have to remember at that moment in time, that person is actually not looking for somebody to offer them all the answers. They are not looking for a link. They are looking for someone to walk with them. They're yearning to be seen. I stayed with Phil for three years. He is still a dear friend of mine. Phil is following Jesus in a deeper way you could have ever imagined. But it was only possible because he had a partner. He had a friend. I want to argue that the deconstruction and doubt stuff that we're walking through, I want to argue it is the Spirit's invitation back to community. I wanna discern something here. There is a difference between good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. Good deconstruction, I would argue, are those moments in our life where we recognize something we believe about Jesus is not Jesus and we go, this has to change. This is wrong. I need I need. I need to study the Bible and find out what it has to say. I need my th- theology to be rethought in this area. That That, friends, is good deconstruction. Good deconstruction are those moments when we see elements in our understanding of God that do not reflect God, and we have the guts to say, I'm going to undo that aspect in order to follow God more faithfully. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, actually, The sign that you're following God. This is in his book, The Great Divorce. He's talking about a picture he had of his wife, Joy, who had passed away. And he's reflecting about how he's fallen more in love with the picture of his wife, Joy, than he loved Joy. And he says that we do that to God. Quote, he says, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. I want joy, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become, in the end, a snare, a horror, an obstacle. Images of the holy become easily holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. Here's what I'm trying to say. In order for us to follow Jesus faithfully from time to time, he has to come and just shake us up. It is Isaiah walking into the temple, seeing the Lord in his glory, and the first word out of his mouth is, Oive. I'm a, I'm a broken man. Those moments when God reveals something of himself and we realize we've been wrong. That's good. Heaven, heaven, that moment we will see Jesus' face to face. My friend, Jerry Root at Wheaton University says, the minute we enter heaven, the first words out of our mouth will be ah oh. <laughs> Heaven will be the great deconstruction where we will see him face to face. I love the Carl Barth wrote a, 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 he was a theologian years ago who wrote a book called, a set of books called Church Dogmatics. It's 10 million words long. It is said that he didn't actually read the whole thing. And he said this, he said, after having read this book or after having written this book, he was asked, what do you think about, uh, about this book? And he said, he said this, after having written 10 million words about God, he says, in heaven, we shall know all that is necessary and we shall not have to write on paper or read more. Indeed, I shall be able to dump even my book, Church Dogmatics, on the ground over the growth of which the angels have long amazed on some heavenly floor as a pile of waste paper." And what he's saying here is that even in the, in the presence of God, our theology is shattered. I actually think, for a lot of us, deconstruction is actually our way of faithfully following Jesus, that, that actually we need to ask big questions because something we've been handed is not good. You know, in, in a way, this sounds silly, but my wife and I grow tomatoes. This is the way I think about it. My wife and I grow these incredible Oregon tomatoes. If you've never had Oregon tomatoes, you haven't lived. It is proof of the living God. They are so good. Oregon tomatoes are why we live here in a dark doldrum nine months out of the year. <laughs> They're so good. And we grow these tomatoes. And in the summer, we will have somebody come to our home to have a meal. And they will say, well, I don't like tomatoes. And I'll serve them my tomatoes. And then they'll say, oh my gosh, I love tomatoes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you begin to realize people don't hate fake, people don't hate fake, people don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes. And what a lot of us are deconstructing is not Jesus. It's bad religion. And we have confused bad religion with Jesus. And I wanna argue that actually some of us, at the end of the day, are questioning because we long for God. That's good deconstruction. But friends, there is bad deconstruction. And for me, to think about the difference between good and bad deconstruction, we have to ask the question, what is the goal? And the goal, friends, I'm gonna just retweet a little Jesus here. The goal is eternal life. Jesus says eternal life in John's gospel is to know the one who's been sent. It's to know Jesus. It's to live and enjoy and to love Jesus. That is the goal. Everything is about that goal. If you don't have that goal in mind, then there's no way in the world to discern if it's good or bad deconstruction. The goal is Jesus. This conversation is not about getting progressives to become conservatives. This is not about getting conservatives to become progressives. This is about getting everyone to go deep in to Jesus. And if that's the goal, then friends, there are clearly some bad forms of deconstruction. Let me define a term for you. Ethnocentrism In fact, let me define it for you. Uh, This is a a term given by Edward Norbeck, who was a a, a sociologist of culture uh, and an anthropologist, and he defines ethnocentrism this way. It's a very interesting uh, concept. Ethnocentrism literally means people-centered. It is the idea that your culture and your moment in time is the most important and the best. (laughs) He defines it this way. Uh, he says, ethnocentrism is an, an excessive centering of ideas and values around those of one's own culture so that the customs of people of different cultures are depreciated and regarded as amusing, ridiculous, inferior, unworthy of serious consideration, immoral, and animal. Essentially the idea that your culture is the best. And friends, when we look at the history of the Bible, we see ethnocentrism impacting a lot of stuff. Let me give you an example. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this is a snapshot of Thomas Jefferson. He was one of the founders of uh, the United States of America. He was one of the framers of a constitution. And you're going to notice in this picture that aside next to Thomas Jefferson is a picture of his Bible. What do you notice about his Bible? And parts of it are cut out. Now, the story behind, this is actually at the Smithsonian Institute Washington, D.C. You can go look at his Bible yourself. The story behind, Je- behind Jefferson was Jefferson was raised in, in classic, he was a classic European Enlightenment thinker. He's steeped in the Western uh, uh, tradition of the Enlightenment. And for for Jefferson and the Enlightenment, the supernatural was, was stupid. It was bad. It wasn't good. It wasn't true. It wasn't possible. Miracles, impossible. Jefferson claimed to be a Christian. He was what we call a deist Christian, which means that he believed that God created the universe, but then sort of stepped away. Well, this created an interesting problem for Thomas Jefferson because of how many Bible stories we have about miracles. So, what did Jefferson do? He goes to his Bible and he cuts out all the miracles. In fact, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, it's the most depressing book in the world because he cuts out the resurrection. It ends with his death, there is no redemption. It's really, really sad. And when you look at his Bible, he cut out all the parts that didn't fit his cultural narrative. Now, I've never, uh, I've never in my life, (laughs) I've never in my life had a student come into my Bible class with a pair of scissors and cut out some. I mean, I'd flunk them real real quick if they did that, but just cut out the parts they don't like. We don't do this physically. We do it emotionally. We do it exegetically. Let me give you another example. One of the problems that the early uh, slave owners in America uh, faced was that the slave owners actually loved that the slaves read the Bible. They, They actually were really thankful that the slaves read the Bible because when the slaves read the Bible, they were inspired. But there was a problem. (laughs) The slave owners didn't really like the parts of the Bible that were about the the slaves going free. And so the slave owners, they they took their Bible, and they wanted the slaves to have Bibles, but they didn't want their slaves to know God wanted them to go free. And so they literally cut out the book of Exodus, which is a story about God's freedom from the slaves, gave it to the slaves, and passed it along. They called them slave Bibles. Failing to recognize that this was not a God who was interested in inspiring people to slavery. This was a God seeking their freedom. To say nothing of the fact that the Bible was actually judging and and putting into place the slave owners. And what we see in that moment in time is what was needed was not a deconstructed Bible, they needed the whole Bible. They needed the whole Bible, because the whole Bible not only gave hope to the slaves, but it gave hope that God wanted them to go free. And it confronted the slave owners and said you are using your privilege for evil. There's a Catholic theologian who said slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. He said slavery ended because people finally started reading the Bible. I look at Jefferson, I look at the slave Bibles, And what I see is I see people who are passing along a version of the faith that works for them. And what I wanna say is, we aren't called to love the God we want. We are called to love the God who is. I'm sitting in my office three weeks ago. I have a student come into my office. We're having a conversation about sexuality. I, I don't know what it is, but living in places like Portland has really driven me back to Anyways, I, um, I'm, I'm fairly conservative when it comes to sexuality. I'm sitting in my office, and we're talking about sexuality, and she says, I say, what do you think about sexuality? And she says, well, I think God has evolved. And I said, "I said, what do you think God has evolved into? And she says, well, I think God now, I think God thinks differently than he did now, and, and she sort of lays out this, this vision of sexuality. And I looked at her, and I said what I said. I can't believe I said it, but I said, are we talking about God or about you? And I looked at her and I said, you're talking about yourself and you've confused God with you. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is, God made us in our image, but we're really good at making him back. And the call of being a Christian, friends, bad deconstruction, (laughs) is when we just do away with the parts of the Bibles that we don't like because it doesn't fit our lives. The goal of a disciple is not to bend the Bible around what we think and our culture, it is to bend our culture and our lives around what God has to say. I live in Eugene, you may run me out of town tonight. (laughs) I may never come back. But the question of the age that our generation is gonna face is, are we willing to follow what God has to say or are we gonna make God in our own image? The second thing is Thomas trusts himself. And when I say Thomas trusts himself, we actually see this interesting taking place. He says, I can't believe that he is resurrected. What's really happening here, it's not that he can't believe, it's that now he believes in himself over the community of the witness. He's actually believing his own eyes. He's believing his own eyeballs. He can't believe what they're saying. He can't believe the truth. And so he's actually believing himself, it was a book written a number of years ago by a guy named Michael Polanyi called Personal Knowledge. He wrote about science, and he wrote this groundbreaking book about science, and he argued that at the end of the day, every single scientific inquiry, question, and answer is at the end of the day based on an act of faith. You are believing in your tools. You are believing in the instructions. You are believing that the universe is orderly, that actually objective science is based on faith. And what we see from Thomas is yes, he's doubting that Jesus is resurrected, but he's believing himself. And why this is important is friends, we're not talking about faith and reason, we're talking about faith and alternative faith. We all believe in something. And in this moment in time, Thomas believes in himself more than the truth of the resurrection. I mean friends, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When the serpent comes to the woman and says, did God really say you must not eat from the tree? And he says, surely you won't die. He's saying to her, don't trust what God has said, trust what you think. It's interesting, God, the serpent actually says to the woman, he says, if if you eat from this tree, you will be like God, it's interesting. In, in, in the temptation when Jesus is in the desert, the serpent says something very ominous, the same. The serpent says to Jesus, if you fall off this high place, if you bow down and worship, I will give you all the nations. Now what's interesting is in both cases, the serpent, was the woman already like God? She was made in his image. Who already had the nations? One of the serpent's tricks is he always offers us things we already have in Christ. He offers us these little things, assuming we don't have it. We already have it. You already have the identity. You are already loved. You don't need to give your body to be loved. You are loved right here and right now. And the serpent's trick to this woman is he says, believe in yourself. Don't believe in what God has said. Don't believe in what he told you. He says, believe in yourself. And that is friends, literally demonic wisdom. Believe in yourself. Don't believe in what God has said. Believe in yourself. Do you hear it in Thomas's voice? If I can touch his side, I will believe. When a student says to me, I could only believe in a God who dot, 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 dot. It's Thomas. Thomas. He is saying, I will believe in God so long as God fits my cultural narrative, what I think he should be, as long as God fits what I want him to be. And that, friends, at the end of the day, is trusting in ourselves more and trusting in God. And then I want to point out that Thomas, he does return to worship. He comes to Jesus and worships. And why that's important is we have got to see worship as a reflection and an opportunity and a reality for a person in doubt. Worship and doubt can go hand in hand. There's a line in Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus goes up on the mountain and it says that they came to him, but some doubted. They worshiped with their doubt they came to worship God with their questions. And Thomas comes to worship God in his questions. And I gotta point this out, Dallas Willard points this out. You'll like this, John Mark. Did you notice that Jesus does not show up to Thomas for a week? And why that's important is that when you are going through doubt and deconstruction, it feels like forever. And Dallas Willard says that from time to time, God actually allows us to stew in our doubts because it makes us people worthy of truth. It's like dry farming. If you've ever known somebody who's grown grape seeds, they're a vinter, they'll always, you'll know this, you never artificially water the plants. Never, why? Because if you artificially water the plants, all the roots stay at the surface where the water is. What we need to do is embrace the silence and quietness of God and the questions as opportunities for our roots to go really far down. He waits a week, but he does show up. And he sees him. And Thomas worships with his whole heart. I get asked this question Is doubt bad? I mean, don't we have a passage in the book of James that says the person who doubts is the double minded? And I would say, Sure, that can happen. But the book of Jude tells us to be merciful to those who doubt. Meaning this it implies the doubters are among us. And when you meet them, you're kind that you don't treat somebody in doubt as a problem, you see them as a gift from the living God. What does Thomas go and do? You know, the end of the story, you may not know kind of what happens to Thomas, but the end of the story is this. The end of the story is Thomas actually becomes a missionary. Does anybody know where he goes? Indian. He goes to India. Actually, if you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, my friend Christy Thomas uh, loves Jesus with all her heart, and she is, uh, something, she, she, 20, generation, 20 generations ago her family met Jesus in a community of Thomas Christians in India. There's a community of Thomas Christians today that have been following Jesus for 2,000 years. Why? Because a doubter went all the way to India and taught the good news of Jesus and it, and it revolutionized a society. I say this to say, the minute we can stop seeing doubters as a problem in the church and our future missionaries, there's a future. To the person listening to this who is struggling with your faith and you're wondering how in the world God can use you or do anything with you, may you hear the voice of the living God say, Your story is not done. You're just prepping to be a missionary. And the story is that deconstruction, yeah, it's painful, it's hard, but man alive, when you have grit and you stay with Jesus long enough, you come out the other side, you've got some scars of your own, but you come out with a new vigor and grit and love. This is friends, why we love people like Henry Nowen who struggled with his sexuality and was faithful to Jesus in the middle of it. This is why we love C.S. Lewis and people like Flannery O'Connor and people like this. We love their writings because we know that their life was marked by struggle and doubt and didn't get everything they wanted. They lived the cruciform life where the highest goal was not their desires, but eternal life. What we need is a new generation of Henry Nowins and Flannery O'Connors and C.S. Lewis's who have been willing to say the goal of this life is not to have all the answers. The goal of this life is to worship the living God, to see him face to face, to long for that day when all of our theology will come crumbling down by the scar on his hands as he wipes our, our tears away. We struggle in this life. There's pain. There's toil. It's hard. But our goal is worth it. To know God. And to enjoy him forever. I feel a sense, John Mark, do I have permission to share? I think you all are Holy Spirit-y, folks can I have permission to share what I believe to be a prophetic word? I didn't ask you in advance, and I'm sorry. Can I share? As I was preparing today, I had an image in my mind. In the parable of the prodigal son, there's a younger son who walks away. He takes the inheritance, he runs off to a distant land, he parties. And there's a moment he wakes up and he comes back. There's also an older brother that's still at home. And the younger son comes back from his years of parting and he returns to the father. And I had this image in my mind today. Why in the world did the older, why did the, why did the younger son leave? And I had this image. I think the younger son left because he was sick and tired of the older brother. And he was really hurt by somebody else in the family. And I I feel a sense today that God wants to speak to the person listening to this who has been deeply wounded by the church. That God wants you to know He sees the pain the older brother gave you, but the Father is not willing to let one not come home. And I sense the Lord saying, don't let the silliness of the older brother keep you from the love of the father. Does that sound like Jesus to you? I close with this. Along the way, having had the chance to talk with a number of people who have walked through doubt and deconstruction, uh, I met one young woman. This, this, was, this was the the, d'etat. This is the We call this a, a solid closing in, this, in the sermon world. It's a closing story because it's a beautiful story. It's a young woman who was raised in the church and she describes her childhood experience. She was raised in the church in a home where uh, there were no boundaries. She she said, "In, in my family, my faith was my parents' faith. I never had my own faith. It was only my parents' faith. And she says, there were no boundaries. There were no boundaries in my home. And she says, the way I knew there were no boundaries was this, my mom would just barge into the room without knocking. She would never ask. She would just barge in until she was 18 years old. She would just barge in, never knock. And she goes off to college, university. She takes her first philosophy class, and that's all it took. And she walked away from her faith. Then she had a kid and really needed God again. (laughs) And started coming back to church. And she comes back to church, and she decides, I'm going to read the Bible one more time. And she opens to the book of Revelation and she reads that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And for the first time she got it. God never wanted to coerce her to believe. God was always inviting And for some of us, we've only known faith that's been coerced in us. And God wants you to know, he doesn't barge in, he knocks. And then he freely invites you to believe. He doesn't force you. He knocks. And he is so jazzed to come in. But you gotta open the door. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we've had an opportunity to talk about the story of Thomas and briefly talk about doubt and deconstruction, there's so much more to say. God, I feel like a liar tonight. There's so much that wasn't talked about. But ultimately, God, we've had a starting conversation. And would you take these words from scripture and take these words from my mouth, and would you use them? We love you, Jesus. May your kingdom come.